Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Revelation chapter 12, reading all 17 verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning to this difficult chapter, filled with symbols for us, but yet also speaks a simple truth, we ask that you would grant us your spirit and lead us into knowledge and understanding of everything that you hear and tend for your church. We ask in Jesus' name that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, Melissa and I noted that our children were running through their shampoo supply at an alarming rate. A new large Costco-sized bottle of shampoo was empty in short order, so we began to inquire with the children as to what was happening to all the shampoo. As we asked a few questions, one of the siblings came forward and said, I believe someone is using it as body wash. That child shall remain nameless. (laughs) 
We then questioned the perpetrator as to whether they were using the shampoo as body wash or not. And the response was this, what did I do wrong? It's called head and shoulders after all. Seems fitting to use it on my head and of course on the rest of my body. A literal reading right off the label, perhaps having misunderstood the original intent of the name of the shampoo. But we've seen over and over here that literal readings lead to misapplications and misappropriations and that the book of Revelation is rife for that. It carries that same potential. It's easy to misread, it's easy to misapply, it's easy to misappropriate. And due to this propensity, we've set out three helpful rules for ourselves, though, that guide us through the difficulties. And it's worth reviewing them today as we enter into one of the more challenging chapters. The first rule that we covered is that when God speaks to those seven historical churches around Asia Minor, that he wasn't simply just speaking to those seven churches. That the number seven is a symbol. It refers to the universal church, to the complete church. And so, yes, God was addressing the church then and there, but he's also addressing the church here and now. That he speaks to the church throughout the age between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his return. And so this letter was not given to just some Christians in the ancient world. And this letter was not given to just some Christians who live right before Jesus returns. No, it's given to all Christians throughout the age of the church between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And so this letter is for us. Second rule is that the letter doesn't have to necessarily be that complicated. That when all the beasts and the bowls, the plagues and the problems, the seals and the trumpets, what if all of those things have some fairly natural reference? And if by paying attention to those natural reference that we find all throughout the Old Testament, John's complicated visions actually become understandable when we can begin to unpack them. And that leads us to our third important rule. And that is that the literal interpretation of a symbol requires that we read the symbol symbolically. That yes, we are engaged in interpreting symbols in the book of Revelation because we're told even in chapter 12 that these are signs. We have a red dragon, we have a woman, and we have to understand the clues around it in order to understand what's being referred to, that these symbols stand in for things. And so to read a symbol literally is to read it symbolically. And so with those three rules and several others that we'll continue to introduce, we find help. Not every dilemma is sorted through. This is still a challenging and difficult book, but it does assist us. And today we arrive at a new section of the letter. We come to chapter 12 through chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to find once again that we have this structured around a series of sevens. There are seven visions from chapter 12 to chapter 15. So we have exited out of the seals, and we have exited out of the trumpets, and here we are with seven visions. And our current chapter has been identified as perhaps the key to the whole letter, because what happens here 
is we gain a view behind all of earthly history as to the conflict in which we are engaged. It explores the conflict that is behind all the trials and the troubles of the church, behind all the sufferings and the setbacks, all the difficulties and defeats that we endure are defined here. We understand what conflict is happening. And so the conflict is unmasked, and it's stated without pretension in very graphic terms. In verses 1 through 3, we particularly gain the players in the conflict, and follow with me there. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And so here, we find that the woman has 12 stars above her head, and she wears a crown. This is a reference to Isaiah 62, but also a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. That yes, this woman, she is a representative. She is the representative of the saints in the Old Testament here at first. But then we learn that she's pregnant, and she gives birth to a male child who obviously is Jesus. And then we learn later in the passage that she has other offspring. And so some, some have been tempted to say that this woman represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's not quite accurate because it's clear that the history of this woman reaches back into the Old Testament and continues into the New Testament. And she, yes, is the one who bears the male son who is the world's redeemer. But yes, she also has other offspring who are born into him. And so we see that this woman stands for the church, the faithful community, God's church throughout the ages, old and new. And that there is this red dragon, an aggressive, violent deceiver who is out to destroy the woman, who is out to cause her harm, but who is particularly exercised about this offspring. And the point that John is driving at and describing all of this disturbing and chaotic material, this conflict that's unfolding in front of us here, is that for the Christian, we can't avoid this. That simply because we find it odd and strange and maybe even slightly embarrassing, why are we talking about dragons in church? But he's trying to make a point through these exotic figures that we must understand this conflict. We must have it unmasked if we're to know how to experience and understand our experience of the Christian life. And so this morning, as we work through chapter 12, our goal is to look at three different dimensions of this conflict. Because if we can get our hands around the conflict, then we'll know how to interpret the daily experiences that we encounter in this world. And so there's three dimensions of that conflict that we'll consider. First, we'll consider the nature of the conflict, then the resolution that's brought to that conflict, and the promise that stands for God's people in the midst of that conflict. And so let's briefly look at each. First, we see the nature of the conflict. In verse 4, the dragon is presented to us as aggressive and violent. He stands waiting 
for this woman to deliver this male son. Listen again to the description. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is the description of evil and its intent and design. Knowing that Jesus was the one appointed by God to rule the world, and so if he could destroy him, then that whole plan would be forsaken and be over. And so we have dramatic scenery offered to us of violence and eating and devouring and consuming. That said, it's very important for us to consider the contrast between this image provided and how this actually played out in history. And we find this played out in history in the accounts of the gospel. And there in the gospels, we don't find a red dragon that consumed Jesus, do we? No, it's not so explicit. Who is the one that is pursuing Jesus? It's far more subtle. It's actually the church of that day. The Israelites, the Pharisees, they were the chief opponents of Jesus. They were devoted to the Mosaic traditions and to the Mosaic oral laws, and they found that Jesus was sitting loose to those traditions. And as they listened to his teaching, they didn't quite like it, and he seemed to be more of a messianic pretender than he was one who could actually deliver Israel. And so they turned on him, and they joined league with their enemies, the Sadducees, who were somewhat the theological liberals of the day. And though they detested one another, they found some common ground in opposition to Jesus. You see, because what really concerned them was that Jesus was going to continue to stir up these crowds. And if he stirred up the crowds and caused some type of fervor, then Rome would bring in the army and crush them and remove them, and they would lose all the privileges that they had gained. That was one expression of the dragon's violence. You see, it has human agents, and it takes on a human face, and it takes it on in a subtle form, even in the good form of religious practice. The dragon also takes shape with the Romans. Pilate was a man who was not particularly fond of his position. He didn't like being in this remote corner of the empire, but he had been turned over there. It was a difficult place because Jerusalem was known for its rebellions. There were many who pretended to be messiahs and attempted to form into rebellion to throw out the Romans. And so Pilate found it always very testy, especially during Passover. At Passover, the Jews became particularly rowdy, and there was this man named Jesus who was doing things and stirring up trouble. He wasn't particularly concerned about Jesus' teaching, but do you know what he was concerned about? Keeping the peace. That was what was important to him. That was what he needed to do. And so Pilate cooperated with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He let them have his way, not because he was concerned theologically at all. He thought it was all rather ridiculous. But rather, he wanted to keep the peace so that he wouldn't be reprimanded by his superiors. Friends, we walk through that history, not to give you a history lesson about the Gospels, but to understand the nature of the conflict. Because this is how the devil or Satan, 
the deceiver, the accuser. He's given many names here. This is how he goes about his war. It is in these subtle ways. And if we stay blind to that, if we ignore it and act like it doesn't happen or that he isn't real, then we are exactly in his clutches. He has us just where he would want us. That it's critical for us to appreciate that this is the way it's always worked out. If you remember to the very beginning in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are confronted by the serpent, and the serpent slanders God by questioning his motives for commanding them not to eat of the tree. And then he suggests that something positive will come, that they will benefit from having the knowledge of good and evil, that they would be the masters of all creation, and they didn't need to listen to God. And they they needed to take his advice. That is how the deceit works out. And John challenges us here in the vision to appreciate that and to understand it. He gives it to us in violent terms just so we can see what it is. But then we must turn and look and see that it happens in those subtle and very mundane ways in our world. We saw in the churches of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, just the mundaneness of it. We saw that the churches were tempted to compromise by becoming dead in their orthodoxy. That is, some of the churches, like Ephesus, had grown nominal in their faith. They had lost their first love, Jesus. We saw that other churches were tolerating false teaching. They were allowing it to coexist with orthodox teaching in the church. We saw that some were content with having a good reputation from the past, even though they were now dead. Things looked impressive, but they were not. That is the way that the accuser, the deceiver, goes about encouraging compromise. Subtle ways, effective ways. And the church is to be wise to all of those methods, to understand them, to be able to unmask them, to look behind them. That's the nature of the conflict that you and I and everyone who's professed faith in Jesus, all the saints of God in the church, are embroiled in. The second, in chapter 12, we also see the resolution to this conflict. It's summed up for us several times in the chapter, but verse 5 is the most terse. She gave birth to a male child. This is the child that the dragon desired to destroy. He is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's perhaps the briefest summary of the life of Jesus. Born, he lived, he rules, and he was caught up to God, to his throne. This is a reference to Psalm 2. Jesus is the son of David who comes and exercises rule faithfully. He goes down into death. Yes, the deceiver attempted to destroy him, but was unsuccessful. He was there ready to devour him. Takes him into his den, which he has rightful claim on those who do sin against God. But death couldn't hold Jesus because he's the righteous one. He's the one who had no sin. And so the devil overstepped. And this is always the nature of evil, that it lays a trap 
and then falls into that trap itself. It overreaches. And this was the devil's lack of knowledge, lack of infinite comprehension. He couldn't see that the trap he laid to seize the world for himself, that he destroyed himself. He slit his own throat. And so here we have the resolution of the conflict that our Lord Jesus is raised from the dead, that he then ascends to God's right hand, and he now exercises rule over all the nations. The deceiver, in verse 9, we learn, is thrown down. Follow with me. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then, importantly, we see something announced in verse 10. All the hosts of heaven, there's a loud voice and it is announced to all those hosts. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And please note the statement that this has now happened And friends, this is what's so critical for us, that when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to God's right hand, he was victorious. And Jesus is currently reigning over the nations of the earth. And that now we live in a strange time, not in which we're just waiting on his victory. We are awaiting something, but Jesus has been victorious. The kingdom of God and of his Christ and his authority are here now. Jesus rules over the world that he has taken that rule up by defeating the devil and sin and death and rising to God's right hand. It's the dynamic that theologians have typically called the already of Jesus' rule and then that there is a not yet component that we'll address in a moment. But perhaps you remember somewhat of a similar dynamic in the second Gulf War. United States invaded the nation of Iraq Operation Shock and All, and the war was over very quickly within a matter of hours. Saddam Hussein, the reigning dictator there in Iraq, disappeared though, and he couldn't be found. You probably remember news reports in which he was being chased all over the country. And one of the dilemmas that the army faced as they pursued Saddam Hussein was that the local community did not want to tell where he was. And there was a reason for that. They feared that if they did rat out Saddam Hussein, that there would be reprisals. They had lived many, many long years under the reign of Hussein, and they were scared to death of him. They knew he was defeated, but he was still alive, and he was still around, and he was a threat. And so they didn't want to defy him. They were living between the times. They knew that... Saddam had been defeated, but yet Saddam was still around, lingering in the background. And friends, that is instructive for us, because that's the context in which you and I live. Jesus has been victorious. Satan has been thrown down. And yet now he's like a wounded animal, and he lashes out. We're told here, And verse 12, that he even knows his time is short, and that increases his violence. But the resolution has already been established. 
that Jesus has won that victory. And as John speaks to us of this conflict and all of its awful dimensions and the nature of it and how insidious and subtle, deceitful that conflict is, he also wants to press home to you that Jesus has resolved that conflict, that Jesus has defeated Satan, that he's won this on your behalf. And this leads us to the final dimension of the conflict that we're to appreciate, that there also is a promise given to the church amidst that conflict. In verse 6, after Jesus is caught up to God, that he ascends to his throne, we read this, and the woman, who stands for the church, fled into the wilderness where she was where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days like Israel of old brought out of Egypt into the wilderness and their initial sojourn was for three and a half years the equivalent of 1260 days we saw last week that this number is deeply symbolic It has reference to Israel's sojournings, 42 months in the wilderness. And also, it has reference to the ministry of Elijah and to our Lord Jesus. And it's referring to that age of the church between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. But the wilderness was a place of chaos. It was a place of evil. But yet, it was also a place of protection, And so follow with me in verse 15 as we read about the wilderness experience. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. The dragon comes into the wilderness to chase the woman, to pursue her. And it's no mistake here that his flood comes forth from his mouth because that is the deceit and the accusation. This is the subtlety of the devil's warfare, and he attempts to sweep us away, to bring us into discouragement. That is his design. But what we find here is that we're not left alone in the wilderness. That as difficult as this is and as violent as the dragon is presented to us, we read in verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And this is God's protection. That God gives the woman wings so that she flies into the wilderness. And then in the wilderness as she's pursued and a flood rages for her to come and drown her, to sweep away her life, the earth opens up and swallows the flood. And that's communicating very gently to us that this is God's design to protect the church. This is his promise in the midst of the conflict, that those who hold fast to Jesus and look to him and continue in that testimony of faith, that yes, these are the ones that are protected. And this is the promise that we hold fast to, the first one. But yet there is another promise, because as we see here, there's a reference to the exodus And the seventh vision in this series, this is the first in chapter 12, but the seventh vision in this series is found in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. You may find it helpful to turn there. And in verse 3, we're told that there is a song that is then sung. And the song that is sung is called the Song of Moses, the Servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. 
This song has reference to Exodus 15. And the Israelites, when they were brought out of Egypt, when they'd been ransomed by God and delivered from Pharaoh's bondage, they sang a song beside the sea. And here we are told that that song has been transformed. Yes, it's the song of Moses with reference to the Exodus. It's now the song of the Lamb. And so all the company of heaven and all the saints join and say, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And this is the song at the culmination of all things. That yes, our Lord Jesus has won his victory, but this song will be sung at the consummation. And friends, this is the second promise amidst the conflict. That there's a horizon for the Christian in which new day will dawn, and the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, will be sung. And so, yes, the conflict rages. It is real, and it is unmasked for us here. We're told of a red dragon who works in very subtle and deceitful and disgusting ways. He has no good intent. He convinces us of his goodness and of his design. He slanders God. It's the nature of that conflict. But yet we're also told that there has been a resolution, that God has not left you. He has already worked this out, and that the Christian is to have that strong confidence amidst all the deceit and all the slander and all the pointing to false types of life and lies that happen in our world. We're pointed to the confidence that Jesus has been caught up to God that he won the holy war in going into death and rising from the dead. He is the righteous one who defeated Satan. And that he secures for us promise, promise of protection, and then promise of this new inheritance where we will once again dwell with God in new heavens and new earth. That God will stoop and wipe away the tears from every eye that the sufferings and grief that are known in this present life, the sadness of death, the grief over sin, the chaos that sin and evil have brought into our world, all will be made right. Friends, that's the promise for you in the midst of this raging conflict. And so, yes, you have a scary red dragon. He is not out for your good. My mentor, Sandy Wilson, was asked to take a psychological exam when he entered into seminary. They were attempting to remove any candidates from the seminary who uh, they didn't think were mentally healthy. And on the exam, it's a question asked, do you believe the devil is out to get you? He knew what they were after. (laughs) And he wanted to say no. Because he knew that his psychological state was going to be judged off of how he answered this question. (laughs) And friends, it's important for us to recognize that. That yeah, is the devil out to get you? Yes. (laughs) He has no good designs for you. But you're safe. You're protected. You're secure. God has done everything to win the victory on your behalf. And he promises you protection now. And he promises you the world to come. And so hold fast to Jesus, and those promises are yours. Let's pray. Our Father, we approach you in your heavenly throne room where you dwell and reside. 
And we come not in our own strength or in our own confidence. We come because we have been welcomed by the Son. And we call upon you as Father because the Son has reconciled us to you and that he has been caught up in his human flesh into your presence. And by his great victory, we too stand and have communion and fellowship with you through him. And you have taught us to pray for the hallowing of your name in all the earth. And so, God, we ask that your name would be glorified in all the ends of the earth, from shore to shore, throughout all the nations, that every tribe and tongue would confess and believe in the name of our Lord Jesus. We particularly pray for the nation of Cuba, a nation in which we have deeply invested here at Christ Church in evangelism and discipleship, and yet the peoples of Cuba continue to suffer. The church endures great torment. There are food shortages. There are evil designs. But God, protect your church. Continue to grow it. Provide every one of their needs. Uphold our brothers and sisters. And we also pray for your kingdom to come. That your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That your reign would be known and acknowledged by all. And so, God, we pray for our mission partner, Kevin Bigelow, in Christ Church Beaches. As they establish a new work in the area of the beaches, God, we ask that this church would have all of their needs met, that you spiritually provide for them, that they will grow and flourish and multiply there in the beach community. And God, we ask that your will would also be done on earth as it is in heaven. We acknowledge the great temptations that we face, and we ask that you would incline our hearts to follow after you, that we would be wise to the subtlety of deception that is around us, the great conflict in with which we're engaged. And would you graft into our hearts a desire for obedience, that we would seek after you and we would know what it is to say no to temptation and to compromise. Help us, God, in all of our weakness. And we ask that you would give us our daily bread. We're thankful for all of your gracious provisions. We ask that you would then make us good stewards of all that you have given to us. We pray for those who are without on the margins of society in our world. Provide every one of their needs. And God, we do ask that you forgive us of our trespasses. Have mercy on us. We're weak. And our one confidence, though, is your son. It is by his blood, it is by his resurrection that we are reconciled to you. And so forgive all of our sins as we look in humility to the Son and with confidence knowing that he is the righteous one. And God, we ask that you would teach us to forgive, that as we have been forgiven, so we would forgive those who have sinned against us. We particularly ask that you would bless those who are adversaries, those who persecute the church, those who are against us for the cause of Jesus. We ask for your blessing and teach us to bless and not to curse. And God, in all of our weakness, we ask that you lead us not into temptation, but that you deliver us from evil, that we see ourselves called out into the wilderness a place of danger, but yet a place where we know your protection, a place 
that has been prepared for us in which you guard us and you guide us and you keep us. Grant this to be our great confidence in this life that we belong to you because of the Son and all he has done on our behalf. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.